I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. And we will consider just two verses here in this chapter today, 28 and 29. And let's read these verses, John six twenty-eight. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. May God bless the reading of Holy Scripture every time we Read it together. Most of you are familiar with the context because we have been in this chapter for several weeks now. This is the second of two days that are covered in this sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. And on this second day, we see the Lord and a great crowd in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue in Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we see that our Lord is teaching and he is answering questions. We saw that beginning in the previous verses last Lord's Day. Many of these people had followed him the previous day, going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the northeast side of the sea, and there they found Jesus. They followed him there. They found him there. He taught and healed, and he fed them miraculously over there. And as you recall, they wanted to make him king. They were ready right then and there. Their message to him in so many words was, Take up your crown and lead us to a better life. Help us to live our best life now. But his message to them was different. His message was, take up your cross. They wanted him to take up a crown. He tells them, well, he had, he had said and would say in various ways and contexts, take up your cross and follow me to death. And it's only through that Avenue that the crown of glory awaited him. Well, we saw last time that, or in the last couple of weeks, they make their way back over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We'll not go into the details of that, but we see, or we saw last time that the Lord exposes their purely carnal interest. There in verse 26, ye seek me, 
not because you saw the miracles, which indicates or, or would indicate seeking him as the promised Messiah, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. They were seeking for Jesus, as it is phrased at the end of verse 24. But they were not really seeking him for his own sake. They were seeking him for what they could get from him. More loaves. More earthly things. And I would emphasize once again that we must seek Jesus for who he is. Not just for the earthly things we can get from him. And so our Lord goes on in verse 27 to redirect their focus from carnal and earthly things to spiritual and heavenly things when he says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. The Lord Jesus identifies himself as the source of spiritual food, spiritual sustenance that gives spiritual life everlasting life. He is the giver of it. And He is the one who has been appointed and sent and sealed by God the Father for that very purpose. So that brings us to our text here today. We see another question by the multitude and an answer given by our Savior. And though these are short verses and the words are simple and plain, I must confess, I find it challenging to exactly follow the conversation and follow the train of thought here. First of all, let me get this out of the way. Verse 29, our Lord's answer to their question, his response to their question, is sometimes used by Calvinists as a proof text for the doctrine of the origin of faith. This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Faith is a gift from God. Faith is given to us by God. It is a work of God in us. And while that is certainly sound doctrine and is taught in various passages of Scripture, I don't think that that is the purpose and the meaning and the intent of this verse. The the question revolves around the phrase of God. 
When Jesus speaks here of the work of God, does he mean work that God himself does? Or does he mean action that God has commanded and action in the soul of man that is pleasing to God? Well, I believe it's the latter. I remember many years ago, the first time that I paid any attention to this verse, or maybe the first time that I ever even heard it used as an argument in favor of faith being a gift of God. And I thought, I never have gotten that out of that verse. That's very interesting. And then, you know, as you read the whole chapter of of John 6, and you come to this statement, that doesn't seem to be the point that Jesus is making here. And though we may use this verse as a proof text for that precious truth, I would suggest that we should be careful in taking words out of context, even if we're teaching something good from it. Because such a practice will leave some hearers vulnerable to those who take words out of context to teach something that's not good. And I would just underscore the importance of context, being faithful to the context of these words. And I'll say a little more about that as we move onward here. Another challenge is concerning the question of verse 28. Let me mention one way that we might interpret this question. Jesus has just told them in verse 27 to labor for the meat or the food that endures to everlasting life. And the word labor there in verse 27 is the same root and word as work in verse 28. So the the people are using the same terms that Jesus himself used. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Perhaps the people are still thinking in purely carnal terms. They are not on the same wavelength as Jesus in verse 27. And so we might take their question in verse 28 as amounting to this. Jesus, if you're not going to keep feeding us, like you did yesterday, then show us how to do it. Tell us your secret. What shall we do that we might do, that we might work these kinds of works?
that would be similar to the spirit of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 when he says to the apostles, give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. We do know that the people are still thinking about bodily food. They're following these words in verse 31. Our fathers did eat manna in the, in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And just, or well, much as Jesus corrected their thinking in verse 27, he may be doing yet again in verse 29. This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. He keeps reorienting and redirecting them to spiritual things rather than carnal things. He says to them, in effect, believing on me is the greatest miracle of all. And you should concern yourselves with that matter and that miracle of faith. And while I say this is one way to approach the, the question and answer here in these verses of our text, most writers, and uh, I think I agree with them, understand it. As follows, and as I will explain it here as we move on, Jesus had told them not to spend all of their effort and all of their energies on earthly food, but rather to give priority to spiritual food and spiritual life, which he says he will give them, that is, to those who sincerely desire it and seek him for it. And so taking things in that way, we come to the, to the question then in verse 28 in more detail. They said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? They seem to have understood at least something of what Jesus had said previously in verse 27. And so if I can sort of paraphrase, they're saying, okay, Jesus, we will focus on spiritual food and life everlasting of which you have spoken. But what do we lack? What should we do that we are not already doing. Now these are religious people, they're Jewish people, they're observing the, the, the customs and to some measure the, uh, the ceremonies of the Old Testament. Some of them perhaps are still hoping to get to Jerusalem in time for Passover and so on. In their question, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? They seem to be asking, Jesus, are you adding anything to what we must do? Are you adding anything to what Moses has already told us that we must do? What shall we do that we might work the works of God? 
even taking this question in, in that way and with that interpretation, it's obvious that they were still in great confusion and great error. They did what so many in those days did and what many since those days have done and what multitudes continue to do to this day and what all of us in our natural way of thinking do. We think in terms of our own works to achieve a righteousness with God, to come into a right standing with God, to gain his favor by our works, to earn eternal life by our own doing. That seems to me to be the essence of their question and and of their confusion here. No doubt they were familiar with the Old Testament and passages like Psalm 34 that asks, What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. There's a list of things to do. If you want to live many days and see good. They were familiar no doubt with prophecies like Micah chapter 6 where it says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. But this generation of Jews, like so many others before and since then, failed to see that passages like these present the effects of a heart that has been made right with God. These passages do not present the cause of that right standing with God. And as we must repeatedly say, if we get cause and effect reversed, we are in deep spiritual trouble. The keeping the tongue from evil and keeping the lips from speaking guile, departing from evil, doing good, seeking peace, and so on. These are the effects of being renewed in heart by the grace of God. They are not the cause of that life within the soul. We all naturally think in terms of self-righteousness, don't we? We all think in terms of what can I do to impress God. And that seems to be the the position of this crowd in the synagogue at Capernaum on this day. What shall we do that we might work the works of God? What do we lack? Their question is similar to that of the rich young ruler. 
when he comes running to Jesus and says, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? I'm already doing all these things. Is there anything else? Is there anything more? Do I lack anything? Again, we see on another occasion, one who's called a lawyer, an expert in the law, who comes to Jesus and says, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that seems to be the same question that is being asked by this multitude in John 6.28. Now let's just pause here for a moment and consider this. How much is a lost person willing to do to achieve peace with God? Well, the ones that have any concern about it. Yes, there are some who have no concern. They don't care. But those who have at least some consciousness of God and of the need to be right with God, they're willing to do all kinds of things. Willing to do a lot of works in order to earn heaven. And no matter how long and difficult the list of requirements is, many will set about to do it. Some are willing to suffer, to endure, to outwardly deny themselves. Think of Martin Luther as a monk who is denying himself outwardly. Very difficult conditions. A very rigorous routine. Later in his life, he looked back on that and he says those that do those kinds of things are the devil's martyrs. The devil's martyrs. They kill themselves trying to gain favor with God. They martyr themselves. That seems to be the attitude of these people as well. And it's the attitude of many today. Give them a list of things to do in order to to gain salvation and they'll work themselves to death to put check marks on all of the list. Whereas the message of the word of God is that eternal life is God's gift. He gives it freely. It has been bought and earned and paid for by Jesus Christ himself. And it comes to us freely who believe on him. And that is, in essence, the answer that Jesus gives here in verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, and before we read his answer, let me just point this out. Jesus didn't shake his head and turn away and walk away saying, these people are hopeless. They don't deserve any more of my time. I've wasted enough time with them these last few days. 
No, he is so patient, long-suffering. He continues to engage with them and to correct them and to challenge them. In fact, we'll see in a few more weeks, they are the ones who end up shaking their heads and walking away. He answers their question in this way. This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. Now there's several things to note here. First of all, their question was about works. His answer is about work. They speak in the plural. They're thinking of many good works in order to gain favor with God. But our Lord speaks in the singular of one work in particular. Faith. Faith. Believing on Him. Now, approaching this verse in this way and understanding Christ's answer in this way there is an objection that has probably already popped into your mind and that is but faith is the opposite of works again and again in scripture we see that faith is the antithesis of works and rightly so so it is We have statements like this from Romans chapter 4. If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Or his faith is credited unto righteousness, unto justification. Even as David describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Romans 11 goes on to tell us that there's no mixture of grace and works, and and the principle of faith is consistent with the doctrine of grace, not the principle of works. And if it's grace, it's grace. If it's works, it's works. There can't be any mingling of the two as far as a basis of acceptance with God is concerned. Again, we have the familiar words of Ephesians chapter 2, by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So in what sense is faith a work? This is the work of God that ye believe on him 
whom he hath sent. How can Jesus say this, understanding him to mean that it is a work to believe on him? Well, let me point out first of all that the Lord is answering them on their own terms. They had, had spoken in terms of works in verse 28, and he is simply building upon that term. In fact, as I pointed out earlier, their terms seem to have followed his terms in verse 27. But as we mentioned last time, they failed to see that laboring for the food that endures unto everlasting life is consistent with that being given by the Son of Man. They're told in so many words to labor for a gift. And they seem not to have understood the gift part of Jesus' statement. And they want some works to do. So he says, here's the work to do. Believe on me. Perhaps Paul, in another passage, follows Christ's example here in his method of addressing people on their own terms. When he says in Romans 3, or speaks in Romans 3, of the law of faith. I believe what Jesus is saying here in this answer amounts to this. If you want to do the will of God, then believe on the one that he has sent into this world to be the Savior. If you're interested in obedience to God, then believe on me, he says. This is your duty before God. And this is pleasing in his sight. This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Now, I believe that is the understanding that is consistent with the whole context here. Let me point out some things that we ought to learn. First of all, though faith is not a meritorious work, and faith is the repudiation of works of merit, it is nonetheless an action. It is an action that occurs in the soul, in which the soul is consciously engaged. Faith in Christ is an act of obedience to God. We read in 1 John 3, this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And while faith is the opposite of work in one sense, yet in another sense, It is something that must be done. The Philippian jailer asks Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, there's nothing you can do. Is that how it reads? No. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. They don't seem to have been concerned at all that the Philippian jailer might misunderstand and think that his believing was some kind of a work that he accomplished that he would trust in rather than trusting in Christ. Now, I would say we do need wisdom. If someone comes up to you tomorrow and says, what must I do to be saved? If you don't know anything of their background or haven't had conversations with them up to that point, you might want to make sure that they understand that it's not their doing. It's the doing of Christ. And that that is the object of faith. But there was apparently no need for that kind of clarification there in Acts 16, at least as far as what is recorded of the communications. Faith is the opposite of work in one sense, but it is nonetheless something that must be done. And I want to ask you then, do you know this action in your soul? Have you consciously, deliberately, decisively come to believe, come to trust in and rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord and Master? This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Is there a conscious, deliberate, decisive resting upon Christ in your soul? Another thing to learn and consider here is this. Though faith is not a meritorious work, and is the repudiation of works of merit, it is indispensable to pleasing God. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith in Christ is the first act of obedience in a heart Toward God. Faith in Christ is foundational to everything else. It's foundational to all subsequent obedience. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Paul writes to the Thessalonians that he remembered without ceasing their work of faith. And that phrase as far as I can understand, is referring to good works that were wrought after believing and by faith, springing from a heart of faith in Christ. Until one believes on Christ for salvation, all of his works are in vain. Faith is the gateway to good works, we might say. As far as anything that is in any way 
really good in God's sight. And another observation here is this. Though faith is not a meritorious work and is the repudiation of works of merit, believing on Christ is in some respects a very difficult exercise. It is the most humbling and self-denying thing to quit looking to self, to quit depending upon self, and to renounce all self-righteousness, and to look away to Christ, and to look to Him for righteousness, to be acceptable to God. You know, we live in the day of what is called easy believism. That believing has been reduced to saying a few words and being coached and coaxed in praying what's called the sinner's prayer. True believing is a much more profound matter. An old commentator named John Trapp speaks on of the difficulty of faith, the difficulty of believing. And he makes this observation, this is something to chew on. He says, faith is as difficult as keeping the law because only God can enable either one. It is true, of course, in another sense, that faith is a simple thing. It's, it's, an, it's profound, but it is profoundly simple, and it is simply profound. How many, after a struggle to come to faith in Christ, have said shortly thereafter, How did I not see it before? It's such a simple thing. Why did I make so difficult something that is so simple? This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Well, faith is, a, is simple in one way and it's difficult in another. It's so difficult that none of us left to ourselves will ever believe. In some ways, our text here is something of a living illustration of what we read in the 10th chapter of the letter to the Romans. Let me just turn and read there very quickly here. The righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. That's the Jews saying, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Shall we ascend into heaven? Shall we descend into hell? But what saith it? 
The word is nigh thee. It's near you. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. It's not a matter of some great outward exertion and work. It's a matter of looking to Christ in the heart, believing on him. It goes on to say, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Beloved, rather than looking for some great work to do that might impress God, Trust in a great Savior. He has done the great work. He laid down his life on the cross of Calvary, a sinless, perfect life, and died in our place, rose from the dead. And our focus should be upon him. What matters ultimately is the disposition of our heart toward Him. So let me just conclude with these further words of application. Let us highly esteem Christ. He is the one whom the Father has sealed, verse 27. He's the one that the Father has sent, verse 29, for the express purpose of redemption of sinners like you and me. Let us highly esteem him. And in a proper proportion, let us highly esteem faith in him. It is that which God has commanded. It is that which is our duty. It is that which is pleasing to Him. Let me plead with you then to be honest this day with God and be honest with your own soul before God. Do you have a clear experience in the depths of your soul of trusting in Christ, believing on Him whom God the Father sent into this world to save sinners? Do you know what it is To definitively cast your soul into the hands of Christ that he might be your Savior. If not, then my dear friend, now is the time. Today is the day. Turn away from your your good works, your own works. Old writers would say, Repent of your bad works and then repent of your good works and then trust in Christ alone. If you do know this action of soul, of coming to believe upon Christ, 
then let us rejoice in our great Savior. Let us adore Him and love Him and live for Him, worship Him. Be thankful unto Him and look forward to going to be with Him in glory.